Fantastic. Well, if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, uh, as you can see on the screens behind me, we are in the middle of a series on the book of James. It's a small little letter that was written um, to a group of dispersed Christians, uh, kind of in the first century after uh, Jesus' ascension. And it's a very challenging book. Uh, we've, been, we've been looking at a few different aspects, at a few different portions of Scripture. And uh, I'm not so much going to unpack one particular portion as what I've felt burdened uh, and led to kind of address, which is more of an overarching heart um, that I think that James is trying to get across to us. Uh, I'm asking you in advance to be kind, to be a little bit more gracious than normal today, because I'm, I'm trying to articulate and communicate um, a burden that I believe that God has put on my heart and, and, and our team and our leadership. Um, so even as we were singing that song earlier, uh, I see a victory. Um, you know, I think so often our, our natural, and this is understandable, our natural temptation is to, is to apply that into our personal lives. And there's, there's plenty of space for that, and, and that's appropriate in many cases. But I think that God's also wanting many of us to get to a place where we're not just surviving, but where we're actually able to even sing songs like that for other people and where we can look at our community, uh, where we can look at our city, where we can look at our country, where we can look at our continent and where we can actually pray God's victory, where, where, where we can sing and, where, and when we say that what the enemy meant for harm, you want to turn around for good, I'm just telling you, I think that God is trying to raise up, is that the right word? I always get confused with rise and raise. Raise up Christians on our continent, in our country, in our community that are not only focused on the challenges. And of course, there are immense challenges. You, you can't put your head in the sand. But where, but where we don't only see the facts, where we see the truth. And the truth that God has a plan, that God has a destiny, and that what the enemy has meant for harm. And you just have to read the news. At the moment, I can only read it once a week. Yesterday, I literally sat reading through News 24, the South Africa. I just go into the South African tab and I just catch up from the last seven days. I feel so dirty afterwards, but I can't do it like day in and day out because it's just, it just doesn't do any, it's like so tough on my soul. But, but I, don't, I don't want to be blind. I don't want to put my head in the sand to some of the stuff that's going on. And as you read articles, as you read statistics, when you, when you read stories about how only one third of children born in South Africa even have a father registered on their birth certificate, when you read the statistics that every 15 minutes a woman is raped, that, that every 30 minutes someone is murdered, like, like these are things that should disturb us and it should burden us. But I think that God wants the burden to, to be fueled towards his purpose. I think God wants to take what the enemy has meant for harm. I think he wants to turn it around for good. I think, I think that it's easy for us to stand around at work, at school, at a braai, at a mill, and to keep describing the darkness. And I'm so burdened that I think God is looking for some Christians to actually stand up and light a match. And actually bring a little bit of light. I'm not talking about sentimentalism. I'm not talking about hype. I'm just talking about hope. When people take their own lives. When, 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 man, when people have lost hope, they've lost everything. And I think that Christians, 
We, we, we work in the currency of hope. It may be dark right now. It may be nighttime, but morning is coming. It may, you may have suffered at the hands of other people. You may be a victim of X, Y, and Z, and it's legit. And you, and people need to be able to grieve. I'm not talking about watering anything done. If you know anything about me and our church, we believe in emotionally healthy spirituality. We're not talking about denying anything, but we're talking about being real with God about that stuff and grieving that stuff well and grieving with hope and, and eventually becoming healed and even whole so that we can get stronger and reproduce and bear fruit and make the difference that I believe that God wants us to make in our community in our city, in our country, and on our continent. It bothers me that foreign Christians will have more hope for South Africa than South Africans. Where foreign Christians will feel the call to come to South Africa and make a difference in some very, very tough areas because they seem to have a greater revelation of God's heart for their country. And, and, and by the way, that makes, I mean, just psychologically, it makes sense to me. When you're in it and you feel like you've faced a day in and out, there, there, is a, there is an apathy that can come over us. There is a numbness that can come over us. But if we're getting into the word of God, and we see it, as James says, as a mirror, where, where, where it points stuff out to us, then I think it starts to, you know, something starts to flicker. There's a little ember that won't quite die out and where God is wanting to fan that into flame. And all, all I'm hoping for today is that, is that if there's nothing, that there'll be a flicker. And if there's a flicker, that it'll be fanned. And if it's being fanned, that it'll turn into a fire. And I can tell you before God, my only hope today is that you will hear him whisper to you. I, I, I don't want to put another burden on people. In fact, that's why we have that verse up on the wall. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. When it's God, it's manageable. Like, like when we're doing it in God's strength, it's not going to crush you. It's not going to destroy you. It may be tiring. It may be tough, but it's not going to, it's not going to be destructive. There's, there's a healthy tired when we're doing God's will. And there's an unhealthy tired when we're trying to do something in our own strength. But I want us to hear God. God, where are you prompting us? What are you wanting me to do? in your personal capacity. And that's going to be very different from person to person. So it's actually legalism. It's religion. When, when, I, try, when I take my personal conviction, and, or, or rather when I take my personal application, and I try and put that on you as your practice, I'm actually being a Pharisee. I'm actually trying to, I'm trying to add to religion. All, all my job is, is to get you to understand what the Word of God is saying and to be open to whatever God is wanting to point out to you. If you don't mind me reading rapid fire, and if, you, and if these go too fast, you can download our notes on version. But James 1 verse 22, this is the overarching theme of the book of James. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. James 2 verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose, verse 15, you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day and stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do you? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God good for you, verse 19. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds 
is useless. James is trying to say, hey, the demons believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. The, the demons believe that God is the creator. Like, like, they're not having apologetics debates. They're not getting into discussions over what is accurate about God. So, so it's, it's not enough for us just to believe. No, no. Unless we enter into a personal relationship and start to find hope and healing and intimacy and security and identity and purpose. You, you see, if we just think, no, no, I agree. Like, I'll tick the box, Christian. No, no, that's, that's not what God is looking for. God, God is inviting us into a relationship. And part of that relationship is living out an adventure that he's called us to live out. And so we want to make sure that our faith is different to the demons. James 2 verse 26 says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And chapter 4 verse 17 says, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. That's a whole bunch of scripture. I'm trying to get the point across that the emphasis of this little book, this little five-chapter letter that James wrote to a group of Christians that are dispersed, that, 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 that have, they've had to adapt, they've had to apply, they've had to persevere. They've, many of them have been persecuted. He's trying to say, guys, in your struggle, in your season, in your environment, where you are, unless God takes you out of it, we are there to make a difference. We are there to add value. My, my little title for the message, which I'm not sure is the, the most accurate one, is simply that gratitude gives. Gratitude gives. When we are grateful, we will give. When we have faith, we will produce fruit. I don't think it's a stretch to say that gratitude is a result of faith. If I believe that God is who he says he is, if I believe that God has done what he says he's done and that he has forgiven me and that he has redeemed me and that he, has, that, that he has turned what the enemy meant for harm into good. And if he has led me and provided for me and I could keep here all day telling you just some of the stuff that God has done for me. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking materially. I'm talking about what God has done for me, in me, his kindness, his encouragement, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. I am constantly amazed that God is as patient as he is with me. I would have given up on me a long, long, long time ago. If I see how God has blessed relationships, blessed family, blessed friendships, He's just so, so, so kind. And my point is that, is that I, the more I am aware of how good God is, so the more faith I have in who He is, the more grateful I am. And if I'm grateful, I can't help but want to give. I can't help but want to respond. I can't help but want to pass on what I have received undeservedly. And if you're sitting here today and you think that you have earned or deserved an ounce of God's grace, I would tell you that you're deceived. You're, you're walking in darkness. You've fooled yourself. No, no. It is by grace. It is by mercy. And that's why one of the biggest shifts in my relationship with God came at a point in my life where I could slow down and sit down and stop just trying and stop just the machinery of of approaching God in the way that I had approached him for so many years and where I could just sit down and allow God to convince me that Jason, I love you before you perform, before you produce, before you pray the right prayers, before you read what you've planned to read today. I love you. And I, and I can't explain to you how that provokes a response to want to pray, to want to read, to want to understand, to want to give, to want to serve, to want to help God. Gratitude gives. If you don't know when last you've given, I would challenge you to look at when last you felt grateful. 
Entitlement is one of the greatest gravitational pulls of the human heart. Where somehow we convince ourselves that we are entitled to something. That we deserve something. And the moment we think that we're entitled, we we just start pulling the gospel apart. Jesus died for us long before we ever asked him to. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies of God, he died for us. If that doesn't start to melt your heart, then I don't know. So, 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 so please do not interpret anything that I am saying today through the lens of what you have to do to get to God. It's not that at all. It's when we realize that God has come to us that we can't help but want to respond in some way. There are a few ways that I believe that we can give, and this has been touched on the past few weeks. Number one is our words. Through our, how we use our mouth, our tongue, our language, our speech. Will Johnson shared on this a couple of weeks ago, and, and the verse that's so challenging to me is in James 1 verse 26, where it says, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. It goes on in James and there are other passages where Jesus talks about in the Gospels where he's saying that, that, that a good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. You, you, cannot, you cannot produce good fruit from a bad heart. You cannot produce uh, bad fruit from a good heart. So, so if you're not happy with the fruit that's coming out of your mouth, we have to look at where our heart is at. We have to look at our levels of gratitude. We have to look at our levels of faith. I forget who I first heard say this, but you'll see it up on the screen. We live in the world that we create with our mouths. You and I are living in the world that we have created by the words of our mouth. You may not be happy with your marriage. You may need to look at what you have formed with the words from your mouth. You may not be happy with the relationship that you have with your kids or with your parents. I'm not saying that this is a simple shortcut, not at all. But you may need to start by looking at what you have formed with the words of your mouth. It's amazing how when we dishonor, disrespect, discourage people with the words of our mouth, how they tend to prove us right, how they they lower to our expectations. It's amazing how when we speak words of life and hope, and where we speak words of faith and where we catch people doing something right, anything right, and you emphasize that, it's amazing at how people actually start to rise. Raise? Rise? Rise. It's always, it always gets me. How they rise to the level of your expectations. I want you to think about that for a moment. Your level of hope towards our country, in large part, is a direct reflection of the words that you speak. It's a direct reflection of the words that you listen to because what comes in will come out. So if I'm going to, how do I, and that's what I'm saying, I can only read the news so often if I'm going to try and have faith. I can only read about politicians and corruption and murder and rape and another child. I can only read about it so much without it starting to bring a darkness over my soul. And we wonder why when we focus more on the darkness and very little on the light, we wonder why we have a dark view of our country, why we have a dark view of our community, why we have a dark view of the people around us. That's why Christianity is not sentimental. It's not about tweaking. It's about, it's about an internal transformation. It is completely counterintuitive. It is supernatural. It's not just behavior modification. It is radical 
transformative, it's a metamorphosis that comes from the inside out that you can't, you can't help but have fruit formed from the inside out as you grow in your relationship with God. James 3 verse 4 says that a small rudder makes a huge, a huge ship, that could go wrong, turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. And I think that James is suggesting that the, that, the, that the entire direction of your life is being steered by the words of your mouth. Some of us would change radically in our lives if we just changed this one thing, if we just started to give with our mouths. Where we, where, and it's not just how we talk to people to their faces, but how we talk about them behind their backs. It's how we, how we talk about our country, how we talk about our continent, how we talk about being African. I really don't want to be intense today. I'm just telling you that there's a burden. There's a burden. There's a bu- Guys, I can't tell you. I can't tell you what a burden I feel for our country. I can't tell you what a burden I feel. I, I'm, I'm telling you that the enemy is winning in so many cases, and you might get cheesed off by that and say, why would God allow that to happen? I think that if we could actually see in the heavenly realms, the angels would be saying, why are the Christians allowing that to happen? Why don't they care the way God cares? Anyway, number two, honor. Gratitude gives honor. When we realize the amount of grace and mercy that we have received, when we realize how kind God has been to us in spite of our brokenness, our filth, our sin, then I think we'll be just at least slightly more hesitant to judge and condemn someone as a whole because of something that is actually a part. And when we dishonor people, we take a part of their character. We take a part of their behavior and we, and we use it to sum up their whole and we devalue them. We dishonor them. To honor someone is to value someone. Moffat spoke about this very well last week. James chapter two. I'm not gonna go through all the passages. It's on you version. Just some of the key verses. And how God calls us to honor people. When he says, don't, don't, don't show favoritism towards rich people versus poor people. He's saying, no, no. That's because of wicked motives where we will give some people more attention because of what we think we'll get from them. And we'll give others less attention because literally we value them less and because they can give us less. So we look at this transactional relationship instead of a transformational relation, relationship where, where we're saying, God loves you, God values you, therefore I value you. I've never looked into the eyes of someone that has not been created, at, at least in their essence, in the image of God, and therefore I will value you. It's amazing how if we had a celebrity sitting in our, in our service, We'd be, you know, you'd kind of be whispering to the, let's just, I mean, listen, I had to think hard to find a celebrity that somebody won't think is disgusting. You know, like try and, try and think of, no, 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 I mean, try, try and think of, of anyone that you'd actually want to meet and you'll find a whole bunch of people that wouldn't want to meet them. Anyway, let's just say, and he's far from perfect, but let's just say Desmond Tutu was sitting in the church this morning. I think it's interesting how distracted many of us would be. What's he doing here? 
Like we would, and, and, and again, I, you may have a very different view. I, I do not subscribe to everything he says, or everything he believes, but, but, but I think he's done an incredible amount for our country. I think, I think that there's more than enough reason to, to, to have some level of honor and value. And that's all that honor is, it's just valuing the person. I honestly believe that from heaven's vantage point, God, the angels, would not look at a Desmond Tutu or Nelson Mandela or, or, a, or a Mother Teresa or anyone else of the three or four people in the history of the world of the last hundred years that you might actually respect, that, that, I don't think that I don't think that they look down from heaven and for a moment see a single difference in value between that person and the person you're sitting next to right now. I don't think that they look down and see a single difference in value. I'm not talking about agreeing and disagreeing and, and needing to correct and rebuke. I'm talking about value between the people that you hate, the people that you read about that, makes you, that, makes a, that causes a visceral reaction inside of you. I don't think that they look down. And I think whoever it is that you're sitting next to today, I think that if it was, I think if we were going to have an equal level of honor and, and impartiality, we'd be like, hey, that's Mary. Single mother of two. Hey, isn't that Joe? You know? I don't know how to get this heart across to you. God loves people. Not people that are like you. Not people that are like me. Not Christians. God loves people. Jesus died for people. And when we realize how much he loves us, when we experience gratitude, we can't help but want to give. We will give honor. Allow me to fly through this quickly. It's, it's in the version notes if you want to go read it in a bit more detail and think about these things. Because I've been thinking about this. Like this is challenging the junk out of me. The opposite of honor is dishonor. Another word for dishonor would be contempt. Some of the definitions just simply online would be that contempt is the feeling that a person or thing is worthless or beneath consideration. Can you imagine God being neutral to that? Ugh, they don't value the human being that I created. I don't think he's neutral. I think he cares. It's a disregard for something that should be considered. A pattern of attitudes and behavior, often toward an individual group, but sometimes toward an ideology, which has the characteristics of disgust and anger. Where honor involves respect, dishonor involves disrespect. Where honor will produce Gratitude, contempt will produce entitlement. Where you feel entitled. Where honor will value a person, contempt will lower a person's value in your eyes. Dallas Willard, speaking about contempt, said that it's when someone will look down their nose at someone else. Robert C. Solomon in Psychology Today places contempt on the same continuum as resentment and anger. So he's saying that, that, that on this graph, on this, on this continuum, he's saying that, that almost like interchangeably, 
contempt and resentment and anger are, are close cousins. And he breaks it down into saying that we will experience resentment. It'll be directed towards people of a higher status. So when, when there's contempt, we're gonna, we, that's directed towards people through resentment when they're in a higher position, perhaps a politician, a boss, someone in power, whereas anger is directed towards an equal status individual. And contempt is directed towards a lower status individual. David Hume, in his work on contempt, says that we take a piece of a person and we make it the whole. We compare ourselves to the illusion that we have created about that person and feel better about ourselves as, as being superior to them. You cannot honor, genuinely honor someone that you feel has lower value than you. And that's why when it's easy for you to speak dishonorably about someone, we have to be honest with ourselves that we think that we are of more value. And just because you're right, let's, let's even say you're right, doesn't mean that you're more valuable. And that's why we can disagree without dishonoring. We can disagree without dishonoring. It is shocking that Christians are known for disagreeing in so many cases with just vile levels of dishonor. You shouldn't have to water anything down that God says in his word, but you can disagree with honor where you still value the other person. It is scary that we can dehumanize people. Number three, you can give power away. This is a whole other message on its, on its own. But if you are in any position of influence, if you are in any position of strength, and I'm even just saying socially, if you're in an environment where because you're a male, you are considered to be stronger and have more influence, then how are you going to use that power? If you're in a situation where because you are South African or you are a foreigner or you are white or you are black, you have, you have a bit of influence, how are you going to use that power? We, any power, any influence that is given to us is there to serve others. In fact, you'll hardly ever see the Bible saying anything about leadership. There's a brief reference in Romans chapter 12. We talk about servant leadership. The Bible just talks about servanthood. We will use it to influence, to protect others. If you're ever in an environment where you have a say over how people in your organization are being treated or paid, you have a say. You, have, you can give power away as you, ta- as you make a withdrawal from your position of influence and you, and you do fight for equal rights. And you do fight for equal dignity. We can give power away. That's a whole, listen, we could do a whole other series on that. Number four, for lack of a better word, we can give our possessions away or resources. Like if you're in a position where you're able to, now there's a whole lot of debate about when that is and is not the case. That's between you and God. Nobody's going to agree on what that looks like, which is why it's not our role to to put legalism onto you. Our responsibility is to surrender everything we have to God. Say, God, you tell me. So, so, so maybe, maybe, maybe you think I'm doing a great job if I bring a tithe and I and I and I thank God with 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 a symbol of, of my appreciation for how He's provided. But the other 90% is also provision from God. If you read the Old Testament, I think it's in Deuteronomy, it says, hey, don't, like, like, like Moses is warning the Israelites before they are about to become wealthy. And he says, when you become wealthy, don't forget that it is God 
who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That's why I've got to tell you, I am gobsmacked. I'm just, we'll take this off the recording. I don't know. I'm just gobsmacked. My wife's getting very nervous. I'm very, I'm like, I'm, I don't understand. Now, there may be exceptions, but I don't understand. I'm just being very honest with you. I don't understand how a white person in South Africa could ever say that we haven't had an advantage, that we haven't been privileged. I, I know that I have been disproportionately privileged. If, if nothing else but just the, le- just, just the level of education that I was afforded as a kid and a teen, if, if nothing else, jobs that were made available. Now, again, you may focus on, well, those jobs aren't available. No, 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 no. I'm just telling you that I was, I, no person can ever say that they're a self-made man or woman. You may have been diligent and a good steward of what God gave to you. And so you may, and so, and so you may be producing fruit based on what you've done with that. And I want to give you all credit for that. But it is God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You may feel like you have a lowly position in society because you're, because you're cleaning or you're a laborer, but it's God who gives you the If you're able to physically do physically demanding work, even then, it is God who gives you the ability. So it's all He's, is what I'm trying to say. And so I can't tell you what to do with it. I can only encourage you to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when He prompts. I love what Andy Stanley says, because again, we can be so easily overwhelmed by the needs, and, and it is hard not to be overwhelmed. It is hard not to be overwhelmed where at every single traffic light, where at every single, every single time you park the car, every time you drive, you, you, you're, just, you're, you're surrounded by needs, needs, needs. And I want to I take the pressure off of you. It is not your responsibility to solve every need. It is our responsibility to be obedient to God. And Andy Stanley says we should do for one what we wish we could do for all. And if everyone just did what they could do and should do, I think we'd live in a very different world. And number five, perhaps the one that I'm feeling most burdened about at the moment is that we give time. That we give time. Now, we've got the word relationship there. I wasn't sure whether or not to keep it in because I don't want to put all the men off. But, but actually, we are talking about relationships. Where, where, where you don't just give a token thing and say, okay, cool, um, I've done my bit. You may need to give financially, but I want to challenge you to be open to God saying, I want you to give of yourself. I want you to, I want you to give of your time. I want you to build relationships. James 1 verse 27 says, a pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. I think we let the world corrupt us. Where we become numb to the literal and the relational orphans and widows that populate South Africa. I think I've allowed the world to corrupt me. Now we have a serious challenge with literal orphans and widows, and I think that if one or two families from every church in South Africa opened their home to adopt or foster or or provide safety parenting, we'd probably solve most of the problem. But I want to take it a step further and say that it's not just that. I'm telling you, I think we have a bigger problem with relational orphans. 
if, if you have time, oh, I want to be careful recommending this, but, but, but if you have time and you are so inclined, maybe go on News 24 and search. I, I can't endorse her 100%, but I've, but I've appreciated the value in every article I've ever read by a lady called Melanie Favut. Used to be an ANC MP. She used to be ambassador to Ireland. What did I say? Sorry, Melanie Favut. And I was, I was reading an article yesterday based on a book that her and someone else put together as they interviewed young people from around the country. It is hard to read. It's hard to read where, 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 there's, where there's so much violence in the homes if a father exists. How, how so few young people would have that relationship We can judge gangsterism, but what if that's the only family that'll take people in? We can and should judge violence. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But no young person is willing to hurt another young person that hasn't been hurt deeply and desperately and consistently for years on end. We met with someone earlier this week who, from Soul to Heads Up, our, our Finishing Strong program, which is the tutoring program in Danoon. And he was saying, and he lives in Danoon, he was saying, Jason and to the other guys are with me, like, it's not the adult men. He says, Jason, it's the 9 to 13-year-olds that are fighting with knives and pungas, and you don't get involved. And the really serious crime, like the murders, and stuff, that's like 14 to 18 maybe. And I'm saying, what nine-year-old is willing to do that when he's been fathered, brothered, mothered, sistered? Just telling you that it's not enough for us to sit in church and talk about stuff. It's not enough for us to sit around tables and brides and cafes and, and, for God's sake, not on social media and give your opinion and we're not willing at all to form relationships. I, I don't know yet how to articulate this. I just, I just believe that God is challenging me and us as a church. Where we, don't, where we don't put our reliance on a program, but where we build people. And where discipleship is not about a program. We need program. Programs are part of the infrastructure. But if a program doesn't lead to a relationship with a living person who is willing to be interrupted, who's willing to have their heart stretched. And it can be uncomfortable. It can be scary. But you start putting flesh on those people. You start putting flesh on statistics. I've been deeply impacted many times. One of them though was where we had a lady in our life who was living in Danoon. HIV positive, really struggling with her health, had a young boy, and all she cared about was just, if I die, will you adopt him? All she cared about is just getting him into school. She's living in a little shack where because of the position, and she, and, anyway, when she's living in, the, she's living in a shack which was positioned in such a way that when it rained, the human feces from the toilets around would flow into their shack and she's a human being. 
and she loves her son like I would love my children. And it, and it wrecks you. You're like, what do you do? I'm just telling you, it made it far more human for me. I'm like, God, wow, am I privileged. When, when I discovered, and, and by the way, she worked hard. She worked hard. She budgeted. They would have 700 rand a month to live off of. I'm just telling you, that does something to me where I'm like, God, I can never complain. I can never, I'm just saying materially, I could never complain. And the more you get to know people, it may wreck you a bit. It may disturb you a little bit. But is it possible, is it possible that the alternative is that we live very numb, very clinical, very self-centered, survivalistic lives? Is it possible? And is it possible that, when, that, that, that maybe we're looking for joy through more media, more series, a nicer holiday, when God's saying, actually, you're going to find joy and fulfillment if you'll do what I told you to do, which is to go and make disciples of all people. If you will be willing to position yourself to, to get dirty, is it possible that you saying, God, where are you, where are you? And God's saying, if you'll come into the mess, I'll meet you in the mess. I'll meet you in the middle. I'll meet you in the unknown. I'll meet you in the water. Is it possible? Is it possible that sometimes we're missing it because we won't go to where God is wanting to make himself most known? Look, I want to be so careful in the way I'm describing this that you do not put this into a religious, legalistic form. I just feel that the next season of our church's health is about caring for relationships. It makes sense when we talk about a special needs program and how we need one-to-one or one-to-two people. And, I, and I'm, I'm just saying, I actually, I'm actually challenged thinking, I think that that's true broader than just physically, mentally challenged children. I think that if we're going to reach another 100 kids, for example, in our community, we have 10 schools within a five-kilometer radius, thousands of children, thousands of teenagers, if we're going to make a difference, I think it's going, to be, it's going to be purely to the extent, not to the extent that we can get people into a program, it's going to be to the extent that young men and young women and middle-aged men and middle-aged women are going to say, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't have all the answers. I don't have the cool factor. I don't know what this is. But, but I'm willing to be an older brother or an older sister. I'm willing to be a surrogate dad or a surrogate mom. So I'm challenging you. I'm asking you to ask God. That's all I'm asking you to do. Would you ask God, is there anything that you want me to do? And my encouragement is that as much, and I'm, and I'm sorry for the emotion, and I'm sorry if this is intense, but I'm saying as much as this might sound heavy, I'm telling you that it's an adventure of a lifetime. I am so glad that we've been willing to be interrupted by God. I'm not talking about church talking about as individuals, as a family. That, that, that God would challenge us at different stages of our lives to see what we had. Where, where God so blatantly, so clearly provided for us. I've shared this story before. For our first like home, where God did in five days what would have taken us 20 years. But now we're sitting with an extra bedroom. It was only me and Sue and Taylor Grace. 
It's a three-bedroom home, and a need comes up. We're someone that we know. Teenager, falls pregnant, kicked out of home, can't go work anywhere. And we were able to take her in. She had various challenges. After giving birth 10 weeks later, her daughter's placed into our care. Through various other challenges, she lands up living with us for eight years. We become mom and dad. In many ways, you can, it can look like a, like a heart-wrenching and challenging story. I am so grateful that I've got to be a part and still get to be a part. We're still mom and dad. We still get to spend weekends. We still get to be a part of what God is doing in her life. I'm so glad that we were able to see God, you've, God, this is your house. You've blessed us. At a different stage, we just had capacity. And, and by the way, you, you ask, well, how did that all work out? Did you, like, we didn't have the money, but I can tell you that we never ever bought a single nappy. We never paid a school fee. Somehow, God just provided. And, and, I, and I, I remember clearly sensing God say, if you'll take care of what matters to me, like, I'll take care of what matters to you. And I'm not talking about silly, trivial stuff. I'm just saying, if you care about what God cares about, God knows what you need. Matthew 5 is like, or 6, sorry. Matthew 6 is like, hey, Renda, look at the birds. If I can take care of them, can't I take care of you? We get to a different stage where we just had a little bit of extra capacity. We were burdened, again, similar to what I'm describing to you here. And we just, we just started a relationship with who is now our oldest daughter. Through a home, a child safety protection home in Phoenix at the time, we thought it was, we were starting this buddy system for the church and the home. It landed up just being a buddy system for Sue and I and Micheline. <laughs> but it was God. Someone else, I think we were supposed to take someone else that weekend. God and his sovereignty connects us to Micheline Nema Timbela. Her middle name means grace in Swahili. And it's been, there have been, they've, they've been challenges. Got to a point where, where, where we felt our hearts opening up. Where we felt God challenging us to adopt her. And I remember clearly where I was sitting, when I was sitting, when I asked God, God, do you want us to adopt her? And I felt like God's, I can't remember the words exactly, but I, but I felt my sense was like, you know the answer to that question. That's not the question, Jason. The question is, are you going to, do what needs to be done? Are you going to change what needs to be changed in your life so that you can obey me? And in our case, our family had grown. My mom had moved in with us as well, etc. We, we, we felt like we needed an extra bedroom. And God helped us sell a place, find a bigger place at, at a lower cost. And she was able to move in with us. There have been challenges. When she turned 18, and because there's no legal... Uh, parameters in South Africa for a foreign orphan child where you cannot prove the orphan status. There is no legal way to, to adopt that child. Like, it was sad. But what the enemy meant for harm, God used for good. And I've seen her grow in her faith in God, not in a document, find her identity in a family, not in a name. So you might be saying, well, how could we? And we, I don't know the answers to those questions. I'm just telling you that God has met us at every single stage. You cannot care about what God cares about. You cannot care about what, you, can, you cannot outgive God. 
I've seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle. It is the greatest joy of my family is the greatest joy of my life. It is a privilege. It is an honor that God would, would trust us with our family. I'm just saying, you're missing out. You're missing out. I'm not saying that this is what people need to do. That would be pharisaical for me, to, for me to take our application and put that on you. But I'm just saying the principle is when we obey God. 